I smile when I sing that song because my mom loved that song. She couldn't carry a tune in a bucket, but she didn't care. She, uh, she would sing so loud, um, even though she really couldn't sing on pitch that often, but it was so fun to stand next to her. She didn't care who was around her because she had a story to tell. Well, we have this study that we're in the midst of, um, the portrait, and if you're new to New Hope, we've been working through the series studying the, the New Testament book of John, and we're about 30 weeks into it as of today, and uh, we made our way to chapter 10 finally. We actually have uh, two verses in the end of chapter 9 to look at this morning before we get into chapter 10, but just so that you understand, uh, there were no number breaks in the original manuscripts when, when John wrote this um, document, there was no numbers, there were no chapter breaks, there were no verse breaks, it was just a record of his thoughts. The numbers were added later. So what you'll find in chapter 9 and chapter 10 is they bleed right into each other. It's the exact same setting. So the people that we found Jesus speaking to when he was dealing with the blind man last week is still the same crowd. He's got the disciples there with him, he's got the Pharisees there with him, And he's got this large public crowd. As a matter of fact, this is the very last public teaching for Jesus before the crucifixion. At the end of chapter 10, Jesus makes his way into the wilderness. He goes north of the Jordan in the area where John was baptizing people. And he's not in a public setting again until his crucifixion. People see him in different settings, but not in a public way. So what you're about to look at is the very last public teaching And I will tell you, it's controversial material. And it's triggered a lot of questions for the Saturday night service group that was here and for the group that was here in in the 9 o'clock service. And and not in a uh, divisive way, but just curiosity. Like, there's a lot packed into this passage. I don't know if you've ever looked at this before in the way that we're going to present it this morning. Um, Jesus speaking specifically about being the shepherd, the shepherd who reaches out to his sheep. And the things that he has to say associated with it, we would call them divisive. And you'll see why in just a few minutes. It's a very important passage. And you can't look at it superficially. It really requires some significant contemplation about what is the gospel? What is Jesus saying declaratively about who he is? So go with me to verse 39 in in chapter 9. And you'll find the verses up on the screen as always, but you'll also find Bibles in the pew racks in front of you if you didn't happen to bring one with you this morning. This is verse 39, and Jesus said, for judgment I came into this world so that those who do not see may see and that those who see may become blind. Well, there's a lot there in that sentence, so we're going to break that down for just a minute because Jesus just said, for judgment I came. Now that seems really inconsistent. Because he said earlier that he came to seek and to save that which was lost. Look with me on the screen. Luke 19.10. And Jesus said, For the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. It doesn't say anything there about judgment. We would ask, does what he just said about judgment contradict what he said in John 3.17? You might remember the setting. A very wealthy man who was a lawyer came to Jesus at night, and he wanted to know how to be born again. Jesus entered into conversation with him. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son. But how many people remember John 3.17? Look with me on the screen. For God did not send the Son into the world to judge the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. So how does He say Jesus didn't come to judge, and yet here 
he says, for judgment I came into this world. Why speak of judgment here and now? Jesus is stating very clearly that he is the pivot point on which all of human destiny turns. Not that he's judging at this moment, but that he becomes the center, the pin of the hinge, if you will, on which all of human destiny turns. I'll break it down for you very simply. I didn't put this one in your notes this morning, but I want you to see it up on the screen. The object of Jesus' coming is salvation. That's the objective. But the effect of His coming or of His life is judgment, which equals division because it causes people to have to do something with it. So at this point, He's judged no one yet. The judgment is coming in the future on Judgment Day. But because of His arrival, it's inevitable you have to do something with it. So what we find is the light of the world has a double effect to the light. He's both judge and Savior. He both convicts and He converts. I like to read a lot of um, material that was written many years ago. I, I have the privilege of being able to study a lot in the course of a week. I typically put about 30 hours into my message prep in, in reading and preparing and studying. And for this particular time, I was working through a, a writing of an individual who um, lived back in the 1820s. His name is Charles Simeon. And he's one of my favorite authors. I'd like you to see his quote about this passage here. We must understand he brings with him a revelation calculated to elicit the dispositions of the heart, showing what men really are in the sight of God. I know people don't talk that way anymore. And many of you would say, gratefully. Well, that is a complex way of saying what Jesus just said there. But when he says it's calculated to elicit the disposition of your heart, he's right on. It's exactly what's going on here. Jesus is the most divisive person to have ever walked the planet because you have to do something with him. At his birth, you might remember the setting, um, Jesus is born, he's born in the stable, 40 days go by, Mary and Joseph pick up baby Jesus and they walk with him to Jerusalem to present him in the temple before the Lord in keeping with the law. And in keeping with the law, they lift Jesus up into the temple and they meet a young, or an older man there by the name of Simeon. And Simeon, as a prophet, takes the baby and lifts baby Jesus up and says to Mary and to Joseph, this child is going to divide people. Look with me up on the screen. Luke 2.34 This child is set for the fall and the rising again of many, that the thoughts of many hearts may be revealed. So you can't have a more divisive person from the first breath coming out of the womb to the last breath excelled on the cross. He caused division and he still causes division today. Because once you have the information about who Jesus is, you have to do something with it. You can't just leave it alone. It's not optional. So move forward with that mindset into verse 40 with me and see what the Pharisees' reaction was. Those of the Pharisees who were with him heard these things and said to him, We are not blind too, are we? Jesus said to them, If you were blind, you would have no sin. But since you say, We see, your sin remains." 
Now, when, when you read this phrase there in which they said, we're not blind too, you have to read it with a little bit of disdain because they're saying it with a hint of anger in their voice. You're not saying we're like that rabble, that ignorant group of people, are you? We're the learned people of Israel. And the Pharisees, like many people today, assume that they can see just fine without Jesus. Thank you very much. Many people take that position. I don't need Jesus to see. I see just fine. They're assuming, certainly of all men, we possess spiritual perception. That's why Jesus is saying, if you'll acknowledge blindness, that you're blind because of the sin in your life, you can be free from the sin. But because you won't acknowledge it, there's no remedy. That's what He's saying to them. Now here's the problem with the Pharisees specifically. They claim to understand everything about what Jesus is saying, and yet they still reject it. It makes them really culpable. And they will be liable for the judgment. Just like every single individual that you meet who has an understanding even of the most basic truth about Jesus, if they reject it, they will be liable and responsible before God one day. It's not optional. Let me show you what Jesus had to say about this very issue. It comes from John chapter 15. So you'd have to fast forward a little bit in your Bible, but you'll see it up on the screen. John 15, 22. If I had not come and spoken to them, they would not be guilty of sin. Now, however, they have no excuse for sin. Skip to forward to verse 24. If I had not done among them what no one else did, they would not be guilty of sin. But now they have seen these miracles, and yet they have hated both me and my Father. Uh, in context, Jesus is speaking to the people of Israel, the, the sheep of Israel, those who have listened and heard everything He had to say. They saw the miracles, and they still stiff-armed Jesus. We see individuals like that today. They understand perceptually. They believe they have an understanding, and yet they walk away. They are going to stand before God one day because Jesus said, you're either for me or you're against me. That's really going to come out in the next verses as you see because Jesus goes into an analogy about who He is. Go with me forward into John chapter 10 and verse 1. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter by the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. But he who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep. Now, why does he break off into that analogy? Well, he's got this crowd in front of him. Remember, the Pharisees are around him, the disciples and the big public group. And they've seen this blind man who's given, been given his sight. They're trying to understand what's going on. So Jesus takes this moment to begin teaching them about who he is. Every time in the Bible when you see truly, truly, you want to pay really close attention to that because Jesus is being double emphatic at that point saying, you can take this to the bank. This is authentic. I'm going to tell you, I am the one by which people come to God. So read it very carefully with that mindset. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who does not enter the door into the fold of the sheep but climbs up some other way, he is a thief and a robber. Who's he talking about there? He's talking about those who are the false leaders of Israel. Those who have been those who have been destroying what people understand about who God is. And so in verse 2, when he says, He who enters by the door is a shepherd of the sheep, he's talking about himself, the true shepherd, the one who enters into the door. I'll explain that to you in just a minute. Go forward with me to verse 3. 
To him the doorkeeper opens, and the sheep hear his voice, and he calls his own sheep by name and leads them out. When he puts forth all he, his own, he goes ahead of them, and the sheep follow him because they know his voice. A stranger they simply will not follow, but will flee from him because they do not know the voice of strangers. This figure of speech Jesus spoke to them, but they did not understand what those things were which he had been saying to them. So if you don't get it, don't feel bad, okay? The people in the first century didn't get it either. And John's adding his own commentary there saying, what? Why? Why did he just say? Now they should have gotten it because they live in an agrarian society. They're very familiar with sheep and shepherds. That part they get, but he's tying it together with your spiritual walk and that's what they're not getting. What's he talking about when he says they enter by the door into the fold and that shepherd leads them out? Very specifically, Jesus is talking about a morning setting when sun is rising. A shepherd would go to the sheepfold or the pen, we would call it, and he would then begin to lead out his sheep. So this is the setting in the first century. They typically had a wall about 10 foot high with a door into the wall. And it was a fairly large sheep pen because it was communally owned. Every village had its own community sheep pen. If the shepherds were not staying out in the field at night, they would come to the village with their sheep and they would lead them through the door into the pen area. The walls were so high in order to keep out the wolves and thieves and robbers who might want to steal the sheep. And they would have a guard at the door and then the shepherd would go and find lodging for the night. The next morning, he would come back and the guard at the door would see him and would recognize him and allow him to enter into the sheep pen and he would begin speaking to his sheep and they would immediately come to him because they recognize his voice. Now, I understand that sheep won't come to just any voice. I've gone over to Michigan State University and I stood outside the fenced area and pulled my car alongside and I just tried calling the sheep to me. Hey, sheep! You know, they wouldn't come. They're not going to do it. They don't know my voice. As a matter of fact, some of them turned and ran the other way. They don't have any interest in me. I'm not their shepherd. So Jesus says very specifically, He calls His own by name. Do you look in verse 3 and you see He says, and the sheep hear His voice and He calls His own sheep by name? It doesn't just say He calls sheep by name. He calls His own. So He's speaking to the house of Israel at this point. Think Matthew. Think John. Think Peter. How did he call them? Called them by name. Said, come on and follow me. So he's talking to the house of Israel at this point. And he's saying, strangers enter, but the sheep will not follow them. The sheep run away. They don't know them. These individuals are hearing this analogy, but they totally missed it. And they can't understand. Why? Because they're blind. They can't see Jesus as the Lord who is the shepherd. So go forward with me to verse 7. So Jesus said to them again, truly, truly, Your ears should perk up at that point. Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not hear them. I am the door. If anyone enters through me, he will be saved and will go in and out and find pasture. The thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. So the metaphor has changed. First he's the shepherd, now he's the door. And they failed to understand the first analogy, so Jesus is saying, okay, let me give you a new analogy. I'll tell you, I'm the door of the sheep. 
So when he's saying, I am the door of the sheep, you need to understand that sometimes shepherds, when they arrived at the shepherd pen, there was no guard available. Perhaps he was out doing other work. And so the shepherd himself had to sleep in the doorway, literally, of the pen so that wild animals could not come in and steal his livestock or thieves and robbers couldn't come in. They'd have to go through the shepherd and the shepherd wouldn't let them in if they didn't belong to him. So he's giving them a very clear analogy. They should understand this. And when he says, all who came before, he's not speaking of Moses or Isaiah or Daniel or Jonah. He's talking about those who were the wicked kings and the wicked false prophets. They were the thieves and the robbers, and they led Israel astray. So you can see he's really speaking to the nation of Israel very specifically. But then do you notice that he changes the conversation? Look at it again. Verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. And then in verse 9, he says, I am the door. Why change it right there? A very specific reason. He who enters through me will be saved. He's added a promise. So I'm going to help you to see why he changed the conversation there in just a minute. But look at the promise. What's the promise? I am the door. If you enter through me, you will be saved. Saved from what? Saved from hell. Saved from life without God. Saved from sin. And I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Now, there's been a great misunderstanding probably in the last 50 years specifically in the church about what that means to have abundant life in Christ. And I want you to understand it in the context and the way in which Jesus was saying this. He's speaking about eternal life. And the word that's used here in abundantly is very specific. Yes, you can have abundant life with Christ here on earth, but let's not miss the context of this. This word that's used here is parasisos, and I want you to see the definition for it. Look at the word on the screen, parasisos, in the sense of beyond, superabundant, exceeding all your expectations. So your life with God in eternity is beyond anything you've ever dreamed of, beyond your wildest expectations. Yes, you can have abundant life with Christ here on earth, but we want to make sure that we keep it in the context of what Jesus was talking about that we understand we've got an amazing future ahead of us when we identify ourselves with Christ and an abundant life here on, on, on earth with Jesus as well if we will walk with him. So let's move forward thinking that through. Everything that he's saying to them is kind of a mystery to them at that point. Note very carefully, give close attention to the broad use of the term door. No longer does he say in verse 7, like he did in verse 7, I am the door of the sheep. But now he says, I am the door. And this he follows with, if anyone enters, he will be saved. Why the change of language right there? Up to this point, Jesus has speaking, been speaking to Israel as a nation. He's speaking to the people in front of him. And now he changes it to a wide reach to the elect of all of creation. First he's speaking to Israel, now he's speaking to the whole world when he says, I am the door, not just the door of the sheep, and anyone who enters through me will be saved. I put it in your notes this morning, I got five very specific things I want you to see because this is a theologically packed verse. It'll be up on the screen as well. But let's look at what Jesus is saying when he says, I am the door. 
I am the door, meaning Jesus is the only way to God. There is no other way. That's very clear about what he's saying. Number two, if anyone enters through me, meaning Jesus is the source of your capacity. He is the only one who can give you the ability to enter. Number three, if anyone enters, meaning Jews and Gentiles, it's open to all of creation. And number four, if anyone enters in, meaning that it's a single faith action, it is not a system of works, church. You can't become saved by taking communion. You can't become saved by being baptized. You can only be saved by putting your faith in Jesus Christ, recognizing I'm a sinner in need of a Savior. It's a single action of faith. No system of works associated with it. And as a result of it, number five, he will be saved. Jesus Christ is the deliverer from the penalty, the power, and the presence of sin in your life. And that's why he says at the end of it, and I came that they're going to have abundant life. Specifically, he says, I came that they may have life and have it abundantly. Full life with God here on earth. Amazing beyond your expectations, life with God in heaven. So move forward with me now into verse 11 because he goes back to the shepherd analogy again. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. He who is a hired hand and not a shepherd is not the owner of the sheep. He sees the wolf coming and leaves the sheep and flees and the wolf snatches them and scatters them. He flees because he is a hired hand and is not concerned about the sheep. If you've been keeping track through our study in the book of John, you'll note that this is the fourth time that Jesus uses the phrase, I am. The same association of God on Mount Sinai with Moses when he said, who are you, God? And God's response to Moses was, tell them I am that I am. This is a very definitive use in the Greek language when Jesus says, I am the good shepherd. I am the door. Why is he saying he's the good shepherd at this point? Well, let's go back to our analogy. When evening time arrived and the shepherd showed up at the pen, there was a very specific reason. He showed up at the pen because when the sun went down is when the wild animals went on the prowl. And the wild animals that went on the prowl were lions and wolves and jackals and panthers and leopards, hyenas. They're common in the Middle East at this period of time. The good shepherd is the one who watched out for the welfare of his sheep. So sometimes when the shepherd showed up at the door and the hired hand or the guard was gone and had left, he had no personal interest in his job or in watching out for the sheep. There was nothing vested in those sheep. He didn't have the personal relationship. And Jesus is saying, I am the good shepherd as opposed to the bad shepherd, those ones who have led Israel astray. He is a hired hand. He's not the owner. He doesn't have any interest in them. So who's the hired hand that he's referring to? Those are the false leaders of Israel. Those are the false teachers, the false shepherds. And they have no personal interest. Their priority is self-preservation. The last thing they do is to sacrifice themselves. Why? They're under Old Testament law. And under Old Testament law, the sheep die for the shepherd, don't they? Shepherd don't die for the sheep. That's, that's the law. The shepherd has got a sacrifice in the sheep, but Jesus has switched the tables. He's saying, in this case, the good shepherd dies for the sheep. That's going to catch them really off guard. Look at verse 14. 
I am the good shepherd, and I know my own, and my own know me, even as the Father knows me, and I know the Father. And I lay down my life for the sheep. That word know is something you might want to circle in your own Bible if you don't mind this morning. Because it's really used here to indicate a very unique love relationship that Jesus has with you. God the Father, Jesus the Son have a love relationship with you because they know you if you put your faith in Jesus Christ. Very specifically, help, let me help you to uh, see this in the way that Jesus was using this. If you uh, grew up in church, you'll be familiar with the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew chapter 6, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew chapter 8. Jesus is standing before the crowd and He teaches them in a, a very short fashion, but it, it takes up a couple chapters to cover it. And in the midst of that, he gets to the end of chapter 7. Around verse 22, Jesus begins talking about the last days. He begins talking about the judgment. And in the midst of that conversation, he says to them, I'll tell you the truth, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven. Now that's going to catch the listeners off guard because everybody in Israel at that time is calling God their father. They're the, the chosen people. They the belong to the kingdom of God. And so they assume that they're automatically in. And Jesus says, not everyone who says, Lord, Lord, is going to get into the kingdom of heaven. And then he transitions in verse 23. And he says, very specifically, there's a group of people whom I'm going to say, depart from me. Why? I never knew you. It's the same word that's used here when Jesus says, I know my own and my own know me. So at Judgment Day, there's a group of people who have no relationship, nothing vested in the Father. They've never gone through the door, as it were. And so because there is no vested relationship, Jesus is going to have to say to some people, I never knew you, depart from me. But those whom He knows, He says, enter into the kingdom. The beloved of my Father. You have a personal relationship. That's why He's contrasting the hired workmen Versus the good shepherd. There's an intimacy here. There's a personal relationship and an interest in these sheep. So now he begins talking about you. I don't know if you knew that you were mentioned in the Bible, but you are mentioned. Go with me to verse 16. I have other sheep which are not of this fold. I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice, and they will become one flock with one shepherd. There was a guy here last night, the Saturday night service, it's, we have question and answers after the Saturday night service, and, and he said, uh, I don't have a question, I just want you to know that when I read that, I got shivers down my spine. I saw that I was mentioned in Scripture. That's, that's speaking of the Gentiles. It's not speaking here of the Jews. That's why Jesus says, I have other sheep which are not of this fold, which are not of the Jewish nation, and I must bring them also, and they will hear my voice. So the other sheep are you, the Gentiles, and will become one flock with one shepherd, according to what he said. Because John 3.16, for God so loved the world, not just one country. Verse 17, for this reason the Father loves me, because I lay down my life so that I may take it again. No one has taken it from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. Here's the supreme example. I lay down my life. So you ask yourself the question, who is he dying for? Is he dying for God? Didn't need to die for God. He's being obedient to God. 
He's not dying for God. He's dying for us. All whom the Father has chosen. That's what he said in John 6. All those who have been chosen by the Father, I'm dying for them. So the Son, we find, validates His love relationship with God. In this way, He was obedient to the point of death. Look with me on the screen, Philippians 2.8. By becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. And He wants us to understand, no one has taken His life from Him. Look at verse 18 real closely. Jesus is saying, I'm not some helpless pawn on the chessboard of history. I'm in total control of the circumstances. It's voluntary that I lay down my life on my own initiative. What did Jesus have to say to Pilate at his trial? He's at the trial with Pilate. They're having the conversation. It's almost time for him to be executed. And he says to Pilate, you have no authority over me. The only authority you have is the authority that's been given to you. Look with me on the screen. Very specifically, John 9.11. You would have no authority over me unless it had been given you from above. Or what about the conversation with Peter? He's with Peter in the garden the night before he's crucified. Before the conversation with Pilate, what does Peter do? He pulls out a sword and he tries to kill one of the guards. Jesus says, put away your sword. Don't you know? My father would rescue me in a heartbeat. He would send me a legion of angels. Look with me up on the screen. Matthew 26, 53. Or do you not think that I cannot appeal to my father and he will at once put at my disposal more than 12 legions of angels? There's a thousand angels in a legion. God should have sent and could have sent 12,000 angels. He only needs one to wipe this crowd out. How easily... Jesus could have walked away from the crucifixion. He didn't have to have anything to do with it. You know what that tells me, church? That tells me that when Judas betrayed Jesus, there was no surprise. When they ripped the beard out of his face, there was no surprise. When they filleted his back with a whip, there was no surprise. When they nailed him to the cross, there was no surprise. It was voluntary. He willingly laid down his life. And he did it for us. And he said, I not only have the authority to lay it down, I have the authority to take it up again. Now this one caused questions last night and this morning as well for individuals who are looking at that and saying, hey, wait, who raised Jesus? I thought God the Father raised Jesus. And I thought God the Son raised Jesus. And others said, well, they're one and the same. God the Father, God the Son. When you see the activity of God, you see one and the same. But we won't get into that right now. I don't want to rabbit trail with you. But what this is, is the ultimate demonstration to us of who He is. The ultimate demonstration is He has the authority to raise life. And that's what He's going to do for you, church. There is going to be a resurrection one day in the same way that Jesus was resurrected. Look with me on the screen, John 6, 39. This is the will of Him who sent me. That of all that he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who beholds the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I myself will raise him up on the last day. Now there's an interesting word that's used here by Jesus. Look very closely at that passage. For this is the will of my Father, verse 40, that everyone who beholds the Son... The word behold is the word thoreo. Now you look at what Jesus said. Everyone who beholds the Son and believes in the Son. 
The word behold is the word tereo, and I want you to see the definition for it. So you can see what Jesus said. For everyone who thoreo, the Son, to discern, to consider, perceiving who He is. Why is that important? There's decisions that are made to follow Jesus that are emotionally made. And those emotional decisions sometimes fade away when times get tough. And Jesus recognized that's part of human nature. So he used the word thoreo because it's responsible on our part. It's encumbrant upon us that when we come to that divisive line, that line in which we have to say, what do I do with this information? You have to discern and believe. Now, here's the component of the discern that I want you to understand. I'm not saying there's two stages to salvation. I had a conversation with a man this week on Wednesday, and we talked for an hour and a half. He attends church here at New Hope, but he's not a believer in Jesus. He's an individual who's been coming here for about um, two months now, two and a half months, and he's just got a lot of questions, like many other individuals who come in here who are not necessarily able to put all the pieces together yet. And so this individual said, would you come and meet with me so I can just ask my questions? And he said, I've been exposed to Buddhism. I've been exposed to Hinduism and Shintoism. And he said, frankly, I've had exposure to Mormons and Jehovah's Witness too. And he said, I don't know what to do with all this information. And now I'm coming to New Hope and I'm hearing this consistent line and it's tugging at me and I need to do something with it. So he's at that point. So this is what I said to him. When we meet together, and I told him I'd meet with him once a month or once every two weeks if he wants to. When we meet together, I'm always going to ask you this question. What do you intend to do with Jesus? I asked him that question on Wednesday when we met. And he said, I am not there yet. I'm close. I think I'm discerning and understanding. And I said, that's good. You're practicing the art of thoreo. You're discerning. You're looking, and this is why he said that. He said, when I make the commitment to Christ, I don't want it to be something that fades away. I want to be locked in on this and know that I know that I know that I know. And I said, I understand that. I honor that. I respect that because that's what Jesus said. You need individuals who are thinking this through. Do I really own this? Because in the hard times, I need to believe that I really believe this. I can't fade away. That's why you see that man who's in prison in Iran right now, who is a pastor who is a believer in Jesus that's going to be executed for his faith, he's already gone on trial, that guy could easily walk away and say, I want to live. I've got a wife and children. I don't want to die. But he says, I'm willing to go to death because of my faith in Jesus Christ. That's an individual who has thoreo, the things of Christ, and they believe in Jesus as a result of it. So move forward with me because we want to see how did the listeners respond to this. They've heard Jesus say everything that you've just heard. And they're the crowd that's gathered around him. What did they do with this? Go to verse 19. A division occurred again among the Jews because of these words. Many of them were saying, he has a demon and is insane. Why do you listen to him? Verse 21. Others were saying, these are not the sayings of one demon possessed. A demon cannot open the eyes of the blind, can he? Can you imagine calling the Son of God demon-possessed? Truth incarnate is reasoned insane. And these people have a lot to answer for one day before God. As is always the case, Jesus has created heated controversy. Jesus, since he is the door, we should expect division, church. 
when you have discussions with your friends, your coworkers about who Jesus is, you should expect division. Here's why. Because a door, by its very nature, says some are on this side and some are on that side. And Jesus is saying, I'm that door. You've got to get through me to get to the Father. That means some people are on the outside waiting to go in. And that's where the divisiveness comes because we would say very clearly, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one gets to the Father through Mormonism. No one gets to the Father through being a Jehovah's Witness. No one gets to the Father through being a Buddhist or a Muslim. People only get to God the Father through Jesus Christ who is the way, the truth, and the life. Absolutely. Amen. That's what he says. And that's been watered down in the church, unfortunately. It is impossible to be neutral about who Jesus is because of this. What we believe about God determines what we do next. That's what we've said through this entire study in the book of John. What you believe about God determines what you do next with this information. There is no neutral position. So we must come to God through Jesus or not at all, because there is salvation that will not occur through any other name but the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we're told in Scripture, Acts 4.12. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven that has been given among men by which we must be saved. This may be new information for some of you. Maybe it's the first time you've ever heard this. Here's how I'm going to pray for you right now as we end. I'm going to pray that God would continue to work on your heart and that He would give you understanding and maybe even a sense of conviction so that you do something with this information. If you don't know what to do at this point, I'm going to tell you that I'm available after the service or during the course of the week if you want somebody to talk with about these issues. I'd be more than happy to do it. There's also elders here at the church. Mike Brister, Peter Yu, Gary Post. Individuals who are willing to sit down with you. Randy Reamer, John Palmer, and talk you through these issues. We want to help you with these conversations. So don't ever hesitate or feel like you're intruding on our time. I'm going to pray for you right now as you're working through these issues. And believers, I want you to make sure you've really got this clear in your heart that you understand that when you have conversations with your friends, when your coworkers, your family members, you know that you know that you know that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through Him. It's not any other world religion. So be very clear that you don't water that down when you talk with your friends and your coworkers and your family members. Don't ever back down. Be bold on behalf of the kingdom. That's how I'm going to pray for you this morning. Would you pray with me? Father, I pray first of all for those who name the name of Jesus Christ because we've just sat under the teaching of your Holy Spirit. Your Spirit speaks through Your servant, and I'm grateful to be able to do that, Father. But ultimately, it's Your Word that's speaking, and it's Your Holy Spirit that's teaching. So I ask for the sake of the believers that fill this auditorium, and those that were here in the 915, and those that were here in the Saturday night service, God, that You would strengthen us in our walk and in our conviction about who You are and what You did to redeem mankind. Father, that You would cause us to boldly walk before You this week as we enter into conversations that we don't even know are going to exist yet. Help us to never water down Your Word and to never back down, but to stay true to what we know to be true. God, secondly, I'd like to pray for those who might be just working through these issues. And in thinking of that individual I spoke with on Wednesday night this week, 
God, I ask that you would work through their hearts. Bring a sense of your nature to want to draw us to yourself. Father, with your loving arm, reaching out to individuals who are far from you and yet want to know more. God, I ask that you would bring your spirit of conviction upon their life and create in them a desire to take this to the next step. Don't let it go uncared for, Father. We, we know that that is your desire, to work in the hearts of these individuals. Call them to yourself, Father. All these things that we've discussed, all these things that we sang about, Father, and even our actions in celebrating communion this morning, we ask that you would bless us and let your blessing rest upon us as a result of honoring you in this way. Go before us, Father, and we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a great week, church.